0: Welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. Today we have Jason Phelps, owner of Phelps Game Calls. Jason, how are you doing? Good, good. Uh, very busy this time of year, but uh, it's, it's better than the opposite, so we're doing really good here. Yeah, you know, I've got a couple questions um, in regards to, obviously, the owner of Phelps Game Calls, and you have a wide variety of calls, but the elk calls are obviously kind of your mainstay or your staple. um you know, I would assume from a sales standpoint you sell a ton ton of elk calls and you do a bunch of other stuff, but you're right before the season here. Uh, a lot of the seasons are kicking off right here, you know, the end of August um, in a lot of these western states, so I'm sure you're just making elk calls as fast as you can. Yeah, um, we're, we're going through more we're, more diaphragms are going out than we can
1: put out, um, so we're, our inventory is uh, getting uh, very low. Um, but yeah, it's you know we can look back at all the all the past years, and we always know that July and August is is when we do ninety percent of our business. So we we try to
0: ramp up for it, get prepared, look at projections, and then we overshoot them, and then we're behind again. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Um, I've known you for a long time. I think we first met. Oh. I don't even know. Maybe like ten years ago at the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation calling contest, I think was the first time we actually met. And um, yep. you know, you you were starting your calling uh, company, and um, want to talk a little bit. We're going to talk about all kinds of things today, but I wanted to ask you about some of the growing pains with um, obviously your business has grown um, from when I first met you. Uh, it seems like you know you're you're on a bunch of podcasts. You're you know um, you're talking to a lot of people you have a great marketing program and and you know you make great calls so your your business is taken off but talk a little bit about the growing pains of you know starting from scratch and and wanting to build a big call company and now you kind of are that big call company talk about some of those growing pains maybe some of the challenges that you face um, on a day-to-day basis and such
1: yeah, so I think the you know the first thing that you can't that no, I can't overlook is the fact that I'm not a businessman. You know, I I I I've become one I think over the last uh, five or six years. But when I got into this, I knew you know very very little about business, and I was I was just a guy that had a passion and I wanted to build some alcohol. So that was like my first hurdle. Is I just kind of yeah you know, I wasn't really good at planning or preparing for the next big hurdle or inventory issues. So what happened early on is we basically get you know, run into them face on, and then have to deal with them at that point. Well, now, uh, as this thing's gotten bigger, we've gotten better, but it's still some of the same issues. as you're trying to plan for growth, and you're trying to, um, you know, plan for just manpower in general, um, and, and then you take that one step further. There's there's a uh, manpower, but then there's there's skilled, uh, you know, labor as well that goes into some of this stuff, and and that's, that's really hard because we know we only really need any additional employees for maybe uh, you know, three or four months out of the year. And then the rest of the year we can maintain and we can build up inventory and, and some of those things. So um, right now my biggest uh, concern is you know, just trying to time manpower and, and get these things building. You know, as you already mentioned, we've got a fairly good marketing program. I actually uh, handle the majority of that. Um, and come up with the ideas. It's just um, you know, my, my biggest issue is is just loving making the calls and not necessarily being the best businessman is, is still kind of our biggest issue, one of our biggest hurdles we, we we probably run into.
0: yeah, I'm sure what's trying to predict how many calls you're gonna sell um, and what the amount of marketing and stuff that you do um, as far as good publicity and obviously you make great calls, but you know getting that publicity out there and then all of a sudden, you get waves of traffic coming in with with orders, and you're like, "Wow, this marketing is really working." And then you probably are going, "Oh no, I'm I got to get up at you know three in the morning because and work for the next you know ten days to get these calls out." Um, making an elk call is not something that's easy, or or I should say, making good elk calls is not something that's easy. Um, and I would assume that you know trying to cut you know, consistent diaphragms and, you know, obviously, you know, trying to make all the calls sound good. So whether, you, you know, you've got 100 calls, you want all of them to sound good. Um, talk yeah. a little bit about from a, from a manufacturing standpoint, not only from a labor standpoint, but from a material standpoint, um, some of the headaches that you, you know, probably face on a day-to-day basis.
1: Yeah, so there's there's definitely two sides. There's the there's the you know the manpower, the labor that goes into it, and then trying to maintain your materials quality um, mm-hmm. from batch to batch and lot to lot of latex and tape and, and frames, um, you know, and everything that we build with. So first, you know, you you project out and you you look at growth, and we're saying, well, we sold X amount of calls last year during this time. We're going to project a 70% increase. So by the end of August, we need to have, you know, 1.7 times the amount of calls we sold. And just so you look at, the first thing I do is I, well, we've got four builders or five builders that are fully trained. Um, you know, I, I trust that their quality is very good, but how much more can you can you squeeze out of them? Can, they, can we get, you know, an extra 10 calls an hour out of them? Can we get, you know, X amount per week? Um, and and I, I like to think that, that my builders build, you know, it, it 85 to 90% capacity at all times, so you're not going to squeeze a whole bunch um, more out of them, and so then you kind of look at, do you hire, um, I said you can't squeeze, maybe I should say you can't squeeze more out of them with the equipment they have, because I'll kind of come full circle and explain uh, another option we've we've looked at and we're kind of implementing now, and then you look at, um, do you hire another employee, And do do I need to train somebody and and kind of run their their trust, can you throw them into production right away, um, you know, can their calls be packaged right alongside with the other the call builders, and that's that's one thing I've probably struggled with the most is being um, comfortable handing over. Um, you know, kind of put my name, you know, literally put my name on the call and then put it out there. Is it going to meet um, you know all of the all the requirements? And then third, the thing that we've kind of been leaning towards and and I, I may have a little bit of an advantage being an engineer uh, by trade and, and my schooling. Is I looked at my equipment we were using and how can I basically bulletproof the equipment um, to add efficiency, to to add consistency, um, efficiency in my builder, consistency in the calls. And so I've I've got some you know one of a kind state of the art presses which I've worked with my press builder before. And I've implemented some things like positive stops. We've got air presses now where um, the call builder never has to lift his hand up to his or her hand up to, to lift the lever. Um, it's all foot pedal actuated. So that that alone we calculated out. We did some test runs, and um, each builder is able to build 15 more calls an hour. And so you think about that, well, that's not a lot, but in the grand scheme of a whole week, that's that's a lot of extra calls. Um, then I'm able to get out of that same builder that we trust, you know, to to build a very, very good call. Um, so so we kind of attacked it from the equipment side. Um, it, it, they're fail proof systems. We have positive stops. We have positive, uh, you know, pressures. So all the crimps are good. Um, so we, we kind of buttoned it up from that side. And then from the material side, um, that is always going to be uh, frustrating. I know, you know, there's a lot of talk out there that all latex is created the same, And it's, uh, you know, whether they want to say that or not, or, you know, other people want to say that, it's not. I've, um, you know, the material properties are different. You're you're material from lot to lot. And so we're using a manufacturer that uh, is very, very good. But like anybody, um, we just had a batch of latex that all came in thin. And I was unwilling to build those calls. I was going to actually, um, you know, start uh, Dirk Durham, who you, you know, yeah. uh, most of the people in the competitive elk calling world know, Elk 101, um, he has a call that, that we designed together, and he uses a pretty specific piece of uh, Kelly Green latex to his specific dimension, and this came in probably a thousandth under. And you're like, oh, a thousandth and anything else besides latex thickness you know, shouldn't matter, but a thousandth in latex thickness is huge on an elk call. And we were going to actually have to probably, discon- you know, not discontinue, but um, basically order his call and not produce any for a while because I was not willing to sacrifice quality. So that's one thing. Every time I get a latex shipment in, uh, you know, I try to test 100 out of uh, 10,000 pieces. Um, so 1%, I'll, I'll open a package out and I'll get my, my micrometer out and I'll ensure that, that each piece of latex is within, um, you know, we usually go 25, 10,000. So if we're looking for like an 004, inch piece of latex, I will I will let an 00375 or an 00425 slide like that. That's kind of my spec range where I'm comfortable building calls on. Um, and so from a on the diaphragm side, uh, I pay very close attention to that before I hand that latex to any of my builders because the builders will notice. Um, they can, hey, when I, went to, when I went to pull back tension or when I went to do this on the call, I can tell that it's thin. Um, they, they pay attention, but they don't pay attention to the you know they're they're more production wise, so I try to take all of that off their plate. Like if I hand you ten thousand pieces of latex to build this certain call, then then they just build. You know for the most part, um, a couple of my more experienced builders will they'll mic the latex along the way and say, hey, um, we're getting a couple thin pieces per per batch, and just to let you know, and and they they'll actually throw it out. I'm more willing to throw out a 12 cent piece of latex than to build the call with it. Absolutely, um, and and do that. So very, very. I struggled, and it, it probably held me back from growth a lot earlier in the in the life of the company. I wouldn't let anybody else build diaphragms. I, I built everything that came out of the shop up until um, you know, three years ago. Uh, so so training new builders, um, making sure that the quality is good. Um, you know, even our beagle tubes, I will get them all. Just randomly pull, you know, four or five out of the lot and just check, right, I'll cut them in half, or is our wall thickness what was spec to be, is our, um, you know, the end smooth enough, or, and I just kind of check things just because you want them to be right, and, and I feel that the, the price we pay for some of these parts, um, you know, they, they should be right.
0: You talk about, um, you know, they should be right, obviously there's times when maybe one will slip through or what have you. Um, from a from a call manufacturer standpoint, having your name um, you know on each call, how important is it to you that you know people get the call and they feel like that you know they are consistent and um, you know in the marketing world that we live in today with you know social media and what have you, I mean one guy gets a call and is like oh this is junk it's not you know how do you handle and, and and it's not that I've heard it but I'm sure you've had some feedback from time to time. Um, you know Phelps game calls I mean your name's right on it how do you handle those yep. situations if someone is just you know they're like hey I got you know five calls here um, all by Phelps they're great and there's one that's a junker I mean what do you do in that situation or does it just you know m- literally make you cringe when you hear that kind of stuff as far as because you you're I know you're a perfectionist and it's I'm just curious how you handle yeah, that it's... kind of stuff.
1: It's it's very very tough and and the first thing I always want to I always want to be empathetic uh, with the customer regardless of you know if, if I hear the story right off the bat and I know that it's not necessarily a call issue um, if for say if for some reason they ordered five calls and they're like man I just can't use this this orange amp and I'm like well because it's thinnest and it's loosest you know there may not be a call you can
0: use but I still want send, send to listen send that one to Jay Scott right. Send that yeah, orange amp yeah. uh, Champ, to Jay Scott. He can use that loose yeah, yeah. We'll give him your after- I'll give him That'll take care of
1: that. Yeah, but I, I want to listen to everybody um, and, and hear them out. And, and so even if I know that it might, it's not necessarily a, a build issue, it's not necessarily a manufacturing issue, it may just be their, their calling style, we still try to take care of them. If uh, you when know, it comes from from being empathetic with them, what they expected from us as well. And, and it's not, you know, if we were dealing with $2,000 pairs of binoculars, it'd be very, very tough to, to run my business model because how can I give away a $2,000 pair of binoculars because it's, you know, the eye cover yes. you expected or something like that. But fortunately for me, we run, you know, a business where the guy's already bought five diaphragms, if you need one replaced, uh, even with shipping, um, you know, I'm still making money on the transaction, and I keep the guy uh, happy. But at the same time, being in elk hunter and and uh, expecting the most out of my equipment, I, I'm able to kind of put myself in his shoes. Um, and and it's kind of funny. My my wife, who helps manage the business now, uh, she's been she's been on board for the last year. She struggles with the idea, like well, just because the guy can't use it, why does he need? to get a new one, like you can use the other four. <laughs> and and yeah. it, it's very, very tough, like coming, and it doesn't make a lot of sense a lot of times. Um, but we try to take care of them. Uh, there's a, there's another thing, why I'm on the podcast, I might as well give another public service announcement. What a lot of people will do, and, and we've chose to package this and we may need to rethink it because it, it's backfiring on us a little bit, is we just, we drop the calls in the plastic baggie um, and staple them to the backer card. Um, which is great until the people open the calls, run them, and then they, when they're wet, when they're you know, right out of their mouth, they will throw them in the baggie and zip it back up. And that is the absolute hardest thing on these calls. And a lot of times I'll get a, an email or a picture. Hey, this was the you know this was the best call I've ever used or a package, and I took it out to use it again today, and the thing's all wrinkly and the latex is loose and wavy, and, and I almost always know exactly what happened. Um, we have uh, we have directions on the back of the packaging. You know, do not store the call wet. Do not put it back in the bag. Uh, and, and even those people, when we when we have a note, we we will point it out and we'll just kind of say, "Hey, don't you know to get good life out of them, let these things dry." And we typically will, you know, we still replace the calls or you know give them a discount code to reorder. Uh, a lot of times, the calls will fix themselves if you just set them out and let them dry. Uh, again, um, but yeah, there's. We've been very, very fortunate that I actually just looked the other day, uh, somebody had a question uh, about where our, our, uh, our returns or our warranty calls are, and we're actually below a half a percent, so uh, very, very low in warranty, and, and that's that's what the caveat of what we've just been talking about, that I, war- I over warranty
0: probably more than, than I ever should or most companies ever would. I want to pick into a couple of things that you had just said that I, I think it's important, um, and you, you you kind of giggle about the public service announcement and talk about, you know, obviously coming in the little plastic bag and then guys pop it back in the bag. Um, let, let's talk about when you're practicing, like, you know, up and, up you know, before the season, a lot of guys are out there, you know, practicing with their calls and what have you. How do you yeah. actually take your calls that you're going to be using into the field? So you've got, you know, however many you're running, um, and 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 this is before the season. This is just you blowing in your house or your shop or outside or whatever. Tell me and the listeners exactly what you do, and then I've got some follow up questions from there.
1: So I'll give you what I do,
0: and then what I would do if I
1: didn't have an unlimited supply of calls. So I'm pretty fortunate yeah. that I get it. A- Yeah, I've got a pile of calls sitting all over the house, and and I'll try one. And and most of the time when I'm practicing up until season, it's just testing their stuff, and and I'll play with the call, um, and I'll just set it on the counter. Now, if I had to go out and hunt with that same batch of calls, you know, I didn't have a a, never-ending supply, I would use the call, let it dry, and then put it in the refrigerator until I wanted to practice again, just to uh, make sure it's dry. It doesn't necessarily need to be washed off every time. Um, just let the cold dry for two or three hours on the counter on a paper towel, you know, or just on the counter, and then put it in the refrigerator. Just um, the worst thing you can do is set it in front of a, a window. Let the sun hit the latex. Um, let it get hot. Uh, you know, a lot of people. And I love practicing in the car, but I get a lot of pictures or tagged in a lot of Instagram photos or Facebook photos where you know they, they've got a stack of diaphragms on their on their dash. And that's that's great because you're practicing, but that call is probably being you know. Uh, exposed to 150 degree heat and direct sunlight, and just getting baked in there, and mm-hmm. that latex—no, I'm not. Gonna, there's been times when I, I like a I call that gets maybe hit by the sun a little bit, dries out, but yeah, that latex bake it out a little bit. Like, yeah, yeah. There, there. There's only a limited amount of time where that latex can just get sun baked. They, they don't. That latex doesn't have uh, UV resistance at all, and it will start to degrade and it'll actually start to to get like stress cracks um, in the latex, and then the, the call kind of falls on its face. Uh, but to, but to get back to your question, if I if I ordered you know five calls from myself, um, had them at my house, I would practice with them, um, set them in the set them in the fridge once they're dry, and then get ready to go.
0: And when you say set them in the fridge, are you meaning like on a paper towel, in no con- container of any sort? It's just just the call sitting in there on its own. Or with the other calls in the fridge nothing over them nothing on them nothing like that once they're
1: dry i don't think it matters as much you could set them on a, a plate in a tupperware in a in a case you could actually probably put them back in the bag at that time once they're dry um i, I don't think there's there's a big an issue it's just when they're wet um is when the issues pop up so um, as long as are in the okay. fridge cold cool dark place you know, even doesn't even need to go in the fridge if you could just throw it in the closet in the sock drawer you know, something where it's not getting exposed to heat and sunlight, or even um, you know any sort of light. You're gonna the call is
0: gonna last a long time. Okay, good. Um, one thing: um, if I'm getting a little bit of um, disturbance on our call, um, if if you're on speaker, maybe take it off. Um, and and if if you're not on speaker, then um, we'll just keep rolling with it. But um, back to. Okay, so that's when you're practicing, that's throwing them in the fridge. Now let's talk about when you're actually going out hunting, um, when, you're, when you're in the woods, you're blowing, you know, I, I would assume if you're like me, you, you get several diaphragms going, you're blowing a couple different calls. What do you yeah. keep them in? What do you do throughout the day? Um, what do you do once you get either back to your, you know, your, your tent camp or your truck camp or whatever you're doing? Um, obviously you have an endless supply of calls, so your answer may be a little different than, say, put yourself in the guy situation that, you know, orders a dozen calls from you and is rotating around, you know, through different calls. Talk a little bit about what should guys be doing. Yeah,
1: I will have a lot of calls in somewhere in my pack, but I, I ideally would like to only use the five or six that are in my call pouch or that I've, I've got out at the time. Uh, so general day hunting, uh, you know, morning. It seems like bit, we're running the calls more, or if it's a, if it's a good day of honey you've got to call them off all day. The best thing you can do for your call is give it a chance to dry out. We use the absolute best materials we can. You know, whether the latex, the frame, the adhesive um, on the tape, all of that stuff, we use the best we can. But that stuff is only so water resistant, or the latex. Uh, you know, people argue at time or or they have before that latex can't saturate. Um, Latex will get milky white, get heavy. I don't know if you want to call saturation or not, but it definitely absorbs, uh, you know, some some spit or water from your mouth, and, and it, it'll start to wax just like when you keep them in the bag for a long time. You know, they're exposed to um, high moisture for extended periods of time, and the cold, you'll notice will just kind of get flat on its face. So, when possible, whether um, I just take the call in my mouth and carry it in my hand as I walk. Um, I like to let those calls air out as much as possible throughout the day. Uh, it extends the life, makes sure the tape lasts longer, and it makes sure that the the call sounds as accurate as possible. It doesn't get the latex doesn't get heavy. Um, how I store my calls, I've I've designed um, we've designed a call pouch that hooks. It can hook to any vertical strap, so it can hook to your pack strap or your binary strap. I almost always recommend people put it on their bino strap because there are occasions where you, you may want to drop your pack, drop um, your backpack, and then you lose your calls with it versus, you know, a lot of times I don't take my vinyl harness off until, uh, you know, the end of the day or when I'm, I'm not hunting. Um, so we have this pouch, and it's got the kind of the squeeze coin purse hardware that we ordered, then we have them custom-sewn by a company in Colorado. Um, the front face is a cordura. The back face actually has a mesh that allows those calls to dry out. Once you drop them in, it will hold anywhere from 6 to 8 diaphragms. You can jam more in there, but it, things get real tight. So I would say 6 to 8 diaphragms, and it's got a mesh back. And so the, the call that I use, I always set against that mesh back. It will allow a little coil um, that I'm currently using. You can actually kind of, especially with the amp frame, it's got the you know the hybrid plate on it. It'll actually kind of uh, kind of get squeezed in the hardware. And then you kind of let that call just hang out the top and, and dry a lot faster because it's it's basically exposed to, to the air. And that's yeah. I like to do that as much as possible. But on a, on a good hunting day, you know that call is going to be in your mouth ninety percent of the time anyways. And and you're just going to have to you know, cross your fingers and uh, you know, hope the call lasts as long as you need it. Yeah. Um. What? Go ahead. I was going to say, and then one of the questions we get along is, is that I'm getting ready to go on a hunt for X amount of days. How many calls should I need? Um, and so my rule of thumb, and sometimes you get a call that I can use all season, then I only need one, and there's sometimes on a day I'll throw a call out maybe, you know, that I've been using for a couple of days. So I always like to say if you're going to, uh, you know, a hunt, get one call for every three days that you're going to be hunting. Um, You know, some guys are like oh, that seems like a lot. And I'm like, oh, you're going on a ten day hunt. You're going to need to spend twenty five bucks, you know, for your calls for the entire trip. And that's kind of that that rule. Phone we went by is uh, if you're going to buy calls, one for every three days works.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's rare that I go out that I have less than ten on me at all times, and (laughs) I usually I usually have two or three that are kind of my go tos that are my. You know, my honeys, like, you know, just like I defend them, you know, like, don't touch them, don't look at them. Like, yep. those are my three top, you know, those do not mess with them. Um, but w- one thing I would tell, I, I get a lot of people asking me questions on, you know, how to become a better call or how to make the call sound better, what have you, is I think you hit the nail on the head. And I do it a lot where I'll call, but then I'll actually be holding the call in my hand or I'll have it out on my lips with the latex being out where I'm actually trying to get air to that latex. I see guys, I see guys, and I actually know a couple guys that call pretty decent and they do this, but most of the time I would tell you it's not a good idea. I'm curious your thoughts. They actually just like stick it in their, in the cheek of their mouth and it's just constantly wet and it's just constantly soaked in saliva. And I find that I cannot be as consistent with that call as if I make a few call, you know, sequences and then I'm either have it out kind of, you know, between my lips with the latex pointed out in essence where it's drying, or I just take it out. Literally I'm holding it between my two fingers in my hand. And sometimes I'm even kind of waving it, just trying to dry it. Yep. Um, talk about those guys that you see um, that probably put it in their cheek and they leave it there all day, how that latex just does not put, it's really not how it's designed and and how they can probably get better performance if they do let that latex dry.
1: Yeah, we're exactly the same on that. Um,
0: As I walk, you know, we all typically wave our arms. I'm
1: trying to hold that diaphragm, like, at the end of my hand so that it's getting as much airflow, you know, uh, putting it on the, biting it out so that the the latex is out so that, you know, air can get to it. but there are times where you, know, you get a long call in or you look at the bull for a long, long time, and I am, you know, cheeking the call or, or moving the call to my cheek occasionally. And by the time that call is over, I mean, I'm still able to sound like an elk, but I've, uh, in my opinion, I've kind of lost it, the quality that I probably started that calling with. And and that's yeah. kind of where we get back that saturation. Some guys say latex can't be saturated because it's latex. You know, I will argue with everybody that I can physically show you that this calling with natural latex is kind of transparent, kind of see-through, and I can put it in my mouth and hold it in there for an hour and not take it out when I pull it out it is milky white and very, very thick and heavy looking. Um, that latex definitely absorbs something when it sits in my mouth uh, yeah. and, and it makes the call react different, you know. It, I don't know if I notice it, but, you know, I may even have to start calling with a different add more pressure to kind of get it to... To sound like i want um, so yeah the, the guys that, that carry that call them all tall i think are, are uh you know prematurely kind of wearing that call out as well too um, for the long run jason let's um, take a
0: quick let's take a quick break here to hear from our sponsors and we'll dive right back into it
2: guys we're weeks away from the start of hunting seasons in most states no doubt you'll have some trips planned If you're going to be out for longer than a few days, take a look at Canyon Coolers Outfitter line of premium ice chests. They're going to keep your ice intact for just as long as the other premium coolers, but aren't going to cost you a fortune, leaving more money in your pockets while keeping your food and drinks cold. And here's the deal. There are subtle differences between coolers that you don't really notice until you've used a few of them. What's great about the Outfitter series from Canyon Coolers is they're designed to be flush vertically, without the cupcake tops. You'll see on other premium coolers. This lets you fit them into tight spaces with ease and they're not going to get hung up on other gear. It's one of those things you'll really appreciate after you've used them that you don't even realize before. And Canyon Coolers offers the coolers industries no hassle no fault lifetime warranty no matter what happens to your ice chest no matter who bought it or how long you've owned it if the cooler falls out of the back of your truck and you drag it down the highway for 50 miles all you have to do is send them a picture of the damage and canyon will replace or repair the cooler for you it's the last cooler you'll ever need to buy it keeps ice just as long if not longer than the other premium brands costs you less and is backed by an incredible warranty and a second amendment supportive company based in flagstaff arizona and now, just for my podcast listeners, save 10% off Canyon's already low prices and get free shipping by using the promo code JSCOTT at checkout. Check them out at canyoncoolers.com. Guys, I've got an awesome opportunity to tell you about. You can check out the Go Hunt Insider for free for a 30-day free trial right now. All you got to do is go to Go Hunt, that's G-O-H-U-N-T dot com forward slash J-Scott. Look for the blue Start Your Free 30 Day Trial button and click there. This is by far the most valuable tool a Western hunter could give themselves. Insider changes how hunts and hunting information are found. When you go in the Insider, you'll be able to check out the filtering 2.0 system. You'll also be able to check out the draw odds for each unit, for each animal, for each state. GoHunt Insider has the best draw odds on the market as far as the most accurate. There's no one that gets as meticulous level of accuracy as GoHunt Insider. You'll see there's complete coverage of 4,200 different profiles, every unit, every state, every species, every season. In-depth analysis, interactive maps, season trends unit access, camping and lodging nearby, and historical weather. You'll also be able to see some of the additional benefits, the strategy articles on how to apply, let's say, in Arizona for elk, for antelope, for deer. You can go in there and see how in-depth they get. It's an unbelievable opportunity, a free 30-day trial. They also do monthly giveaways, so just by being an insider member you get monthly giveaways they give over a hundred thousand dollars plus per year of giveaways gear tags hunts another unbelievable thing about the insider is the go hunt gear shop so every time you buy something you accumulate points in in essence it's giving money back to the insider you might ask well how does this work with the go hunt insider how does the 30-day free trial work you can sign up to try insiders industry-leading hunting products free for 30 days They do take your credit card information so that you can automatically become a member once your 30-day trial ends. You can cancel at any time during the 30-day free trial, and it doesn't cost you a dime. You might ask, how is this different from other resources out there? Insider provides analysis and tools for every unit, every species, and every hunt in each state that they cover they don't just cover the top 10 units their coverage is super in-depth and you can find those hidden gem units maybe something that the draw odds uh, are a little bit better and maybe some quality it's slipped through the cracks and you might find a great hunt there right now go hunt insider covers Arizona Colorado Idaho Montana Nevada New Mexico Oregon Utah and Wyoming all you have to do is go to GoHunt.com forward slash J. Scott and check it out now.
0: Um, you mentioned uh, Dirk Durham. Um, I believe the first time I heard him call was probably about that same time when I was a judge. And I believe you and your wife came down. Um, Dirk, you know, won all kinds of calling contests. He's a phenomenal caller. Um and he, you guys um created the I believe it's the Maverick call. Um you can correct me if yep. I'm wrong, but I saw you and Dirk at uh, Western Hunting Expo and he was he had his clicker going, clicking on the m- amount of times he was bugling. I wanna say it was like a thousand times or something. Um you know, talk to talk to me a little bit about um, you know, you've got obviously you've got cow calls, you've got um you know, bugling calls or bull calls. You've got, you know, calls that can be used for both. And then here you got Dirk who's blown, you know, a thousand times on a bugle and it still sounds great. Um, if, if someone's more a cow caller or a bugler, um, I guess my first question would be, um, obviously Dirk's blown, you know, a thousand bugles and it still sounds great. But historically with a mouth call, the more you bugle on a mouth call, historically, doesn't that call tend to not perform as good as you get into the life of the call? I mean, I understand some take a while to break in where you really like them, but historically, you blow a 1,000 times on a bugle, it's, it's going to wear out. Um, talk about that, and then talk about Dirk's call and why he's able, and you know, people that have been buying that call have been able to blow it more than maybe some of the other calls.
1: Yeah, so... So we started the,
0: the our, our most popular diaphragm, which is the
1: AMP frame. Um, one of the reasons that I think it did so well at, at, at market is because it is so easy to use out of package. You can make great cow calls. You can take that same call and make a great deal with it. Um, the one thing we noticed after a while and, and putting a couple of years of hunting on it is, like, well, maybe it doesn't last quite as long. Um, there's, there's no way uh, to stop the call from, from waxing. Um, the latex from relaxing, the latex from stretching a little bit. No matter what we do, um, you know, we, we design the frames, we we design the adhesives that are inside the frame that gets held. We design um, the raceway, which actually crimps the latex in. And, and no matter what I did, it seems like we, you always get some break in. The latex always kind of relaxes on you. But so we, we created this amp line, and it, it took off. It did really, really well, uh, and then. We didn't, Dirk, the next step was, let's make some signature shoes. So I made the personal call that I use. Um, Dirk came on board about that time, and and we started working with him on what he wanted in the call. And so we set out to make these calls. We wanted something that we were proud to put our own names on, Uh, but then something we would want. I mean, let's design a call that we need one of, that we can do everything with, and that we, we would hunt with. Um, or do, or stage call like you know, when you, when you talk about Derek and myself, somebody that we can take that call on stage and we'll take it out in the woods and and it has other characteristics. So we worked back and forth and, and what we ended up doing was just stretching the calls a little bit tighter. We thought through education when we sell a call, hey, buy, buy the Maverick, buy the Felt Signature, but realize when you get those out of the package, they may not be, you know, kind of broken, you may have a, a call that's slightly squeaky for the first 30 or 40 heavy bugles, um, and then it should kind of break in and settle down. Now what we were hoping to do with this, and what's actually accomplished by all our members and all of our testing, was you do, we educated people, take this call, don't worry about it being you know, a
0: little bit squeaky,
1: right out of the gate, um, bugle on it 30 or 40 times, and then and then use the call without it getting great life uh, out of these calls. Now, it's not necessarily the best thing as a call maker to, you know, make your calls last forever, but it gives the <laughs> consumer, you know, hope. <laughs> but the consumer has a bunch of confidence in this call now. And, and what kind of uh, coming full circle, the reason this works is, is, in my belief, is there's a lot of initial break-in in the calls, and then they kind of settle down, and you can't, like, you know, over some and pass what you've already did in that first 30 people. So they kind of just sit still, um, they set and they're set where they're at and then you can use that call for an extended period of time. Versus if you started lighter than that, then they break in and now your call is almost understretched. Um, and, and the other thing about Dirk's call, he uses a fairly a fairly thick piece of Kelly Green latex. Um, and it's kind of funny, all of the coloring and the dye that's added changes some of the properties of the latex. So Dirk at the very end stage when we designed it, was down between a piece of what, black latex and green latex. And himself and I could both tell that the green was a little bit quicker um, latex in the mouth on how it reacted. And, and I don't know if that's, that's probably not a term we typically use when we're describing uh, you know, latex or alcohol, but we both noticed like the the black was a little bit lazy on transitioning, where the green was quicker. And so, ultimately, he ended up selecting that thicker piece of green latex. Um, one thing that thicker latex does is it resists, uh, you know, tongue pressures or, or over pressures. And um, so I think we get a little bit better life out of that call
0: as well from, you know, people not being able to overstress the latex just by pushing up on it too hard. That's good stuff. You know, anytime I've blown anything with black latex, that's the exact word i I don't know that I've thought of that word, but laziness, kind of a dull, a dulling effect where it just doesn't seem to have the responsiveness um, when you go to, you know, put pressure with your tongue as far as getting air through there. It's like it, it's, it's non-responsive or not as responsive as what I've found. Um, that's very interesting. Um, he's a phenomenal caller. I'm sure having him, on board and be able to bounce things, you know, between you and him, bouncing things back and forth. I'm sure it's been a um, a, a great bonus for you as as a call maker, um, a, yeah, as well as as yeah. as, a, as a businessman selling calls. Um, but just from the actual trying to make great calls, uh, I'm sure it's been a great relationship for you. Yeah, I mean, we,
1: you know, I've always been good buddies, you know, Dirk way back from when I started this thing and, and kind of, res- yep. you know, respect the way he was at. But more than anything, I, he's, he's, he's a great guy and he's, he's fun to be around. You yeah, know, he can, he can blow the heck out of an alcohol and there's, there's nothing but, uh, you know, the, the friendship and, and just, uh, you know, a good guy to represent your company is a
0: very, very, you know, very good plus, big plus for us. That's awesome. Uh, I want to ask you a couple questions. Um, uh, historically, I you kind of laugh. I, I typically, for my mouth, um, blow calls, especially when I'm talking about cow calls, uh, blow, what I blow better are really loose, the looser that the cow call can get, the better that it can get. Talk a little bit about, um, maybe for people out there, I feel like, uh, I'm not talking about bugling, I'm talking about cow calling. It seems like when that latex, for most, Especially for me, but for a lot of people too that I've talked to, um, when I can get them to get that latex loosened up, even get a little bit of a crinkle, even you know when you when you visually look at it, you can actually see that it's been stretched. Um, and and maybe maybe I'm an anomaly. Maybe some of the people you know that I've tried to help um, get better at cow calling, you know, maybe it's just a, a weird thing, or maybe you agree with it. Um, why do you think? cow calling, or why do you think I can blow a cow call better as it loosens and not a tight um, uh, stretch latex? Yeah, I mean,
1: I'm the same way. So we design a call, you barely have any stretch on it, and in my opinion, that makes a better cow call. Um, it's, It's a little bit slower to react, kind of going back to that slow word. Um, you know we're describing latex but that that call doesn't necessarily want to snap back to where it's at and so i think that is in my opinion when you have say if you you know, went to the other extreme you just stretch this latex as tight as you can and it's squeaky you can't control the the drop from from high to low yeah unless you're and and so how do i describe this so if we get into the say like a, a medium stretched call uh you need to have a fairly reactive tongue and make sure. A lot of callers, I think, don't um, want to drop their tongue too fast or, or leave pressure too fast. And, and they, they break over too fast and they don't get it. The nice thing about these looser cow calls is that latex doesn't really have anywhere to go. It doesn't want to snap back to where it's at. And so you're able to kind of really feather that transition and, and find the tone within that, that pressure drop that you want to get it to sound right. Whereas if we take that call that's tighter, you need to you know have extreme control over it, and even the best caller in the world um, can't do that very well. So we'd rather just rely on the latex being looser uh, to do that do that for us. And, and in my opinion, that's why um, cow calls are better looser. And just like um, you alluded to, and I just did, with our cow calls uh, that we specifically designed for cow calls are typically very loose latex. Um, from a manufacturer. I have the difficulty in uh, I think there is a market for call calls only, but it, I think the mindset out there is that this, every call should be good for everything. And so, you design a call that can't beagle, and you start to get bad reviews on it. And so, it's one of those like weird catch-22s up for a manufacturer. How do I design a call call that's very, very accurate, but don't get bad reviews because somebody can't beagle on it? Um, or even get close or so the call walks out. So, it's for a manufacturer, it kind of stinks. i we've, we've toyed with the idea, and it's, it's it's been on paper multiple times. Like let's let's market these as cow only diaphragms, and, and make it known that they're not meant to be bugled on.
0: Well, I mean, I I think if if you wanted my opinion, I think there's a lot of people out there that would be a lot better cow callers if they would blow a lot looser stretched cow call. And if you yep. did, you know, maybe you could do a test run and, you know, I think it would be all in the communication and the marketing of that call. But in general, elk callers in general, I think if if they specifically were trying to get better at cow calling um, and blew a, a, a looser call, I think they would be better at it. Um, yep. you know, I, I, so with the creation of Phelps Game Calls and, and you know, you have all all different types of calls for all different types of animals. Um, interesting thing to me is not only do you make uh, mouth calls for elk, you make bugles, um, but you make external read calls. Um, talk about the external read calls, um, the expansion of that part of the business, and um, you know the, the the need in your mind to be able to blow mouth calls well and, and then blow external read calls uh, calls well to, to, you know, have that well-rounded, um, you know, sounds coming out. Talk a little bit about those external read calls.
1: Yeah. So the external read is actually the call that built the entire company off of it. First, I'm like, well, i got some, I got a lathe, i got some wood, there's some, you know, board, let's, let's see what we can do. And, and so that's actually how we started, um, uh, you know, about 10 years ago is just doing these estresses and, um, uh, I had used all kinds of externals up until the point when I started uh, the company I'd always have, you know, back when I had to buy them, the five or six diaphragms I'd use for the year. I'd have a hyper, you know, Hyperlip
0: or, you know, a couple
1: different external cow calls, and then I'd have my Terminator tube. and so we would, we started with that external, I wanted to try to richen in the tone or um, you know, make a call that's a little bit more nasally uh, for that September hunt, and so we set out to you know, a lot of it back in that day was we bought some pre-manufactured tone boards, but then as we expanded and, and wanted to, to kind of fill in our own line, there was a lot of file work and end mill work, and you know, kind of the quote-unquote old school call maker that had to come out and I had to kind of become a student of the game for a little bit. Like, what's this curve do? If, if the curve gets steeper, what's that do? If the curve gets flatter, what's that do? And uh, you know, how wide do we want that air slot? So we. We really worked, uh, we spent a lot of time on that in the first few years because, you know, we didn't have a diaphragm press even at that time. It was strictly externals. Uh, but in my opinion, no matter how good of a diaphragm caller I am, in no my I practice, the reason that external will always have a place um, in the outboards for me is because I cannot match that nasally sound that we seem to get off of that reed vibrating um, that I cannot reproduce with the latex you know, diaphragm in my mouth. And so in my opinion, that's why we'll always carry, um, you know, my easiest we have a new family that we're going to prototype test um, this year A new external, the, the, the radius is a little bit different and reacts a little bit different. Um, but there's some real, real, real uh, reasons why. There's been on a few hunts where I was diaphragm, cow called, um, it tried to do my absolute best all the time and the thing would not respond. I go to grab that external cow call and cow call an old I thing, you know, hammers back, and he continues to, call, you know, respond every time I'm doing that cow call, and it's like, well, damn, I wonder if I didn't have this thing if this, you know, if we'd even be, be in this, you know, be in this situation, and so there's just times that I can't explain why or how come that a bull will answer that very, very quickly and doesn't really want to, you know, be interested in diaphragm cow calling or even bugling, or anything of that nature.
0: Yeah, they're really good, and and it, it is funny how you can get some elk that really like the external, you know, call, and then some, you know, and then doing them both, you can sound like multiple cows. I mean, it's it's uh, if, if if the listeners out there don't blow an external read call um, and just do mouth calls, I highly recommend to um, to try it, and um, they're pretty dang easy uh, to blow, and. Um, not too hard to master and and get pretty good at. So highly yeah. recommend that uh, for sure. Yeah, it's just uh, it's just like that. You know, having
1: tools in your, in your tool belt. You know, it's just it's, just, it's not necessary. You necessarily going to work every time, but it's nice to have it when you need it. You
0: know, and it, it doesn't. Hurt. Yeah. Um. It, Jason, if you had to, um, point out a couple of things that you think people in their elk calling either A, do wrong or B, do too much or, you know, seeing mistakes that they make um, in general, even your own calling, um, but but more specifically, like, what do you think um, people could really improve on uh, in their own elk calling or, you know, what mistakes do you see that they make that if, if you know, if you could help them out with a few tips, that would really um, bring their game around.
1: Um, you know, I get the fortune of, of helping a lot of people. You know, I, I've always kind of offered it. If you buy calls from us, even if you don't buy calls from us, if you're just you know struggling to make a you know make clean sounds, uh, you know, send me a, a video or send me an audio file. And the first thing that always kind of you know sticks out, and, and it's is how much air is slipping by. Um, you know, you, you just get this. You know, a little bit of elk sound and a lot of air um, going across the call, and, and audible air slipping. And the first thing we need to do before we can start working on, you know, the, the transitions and, and sounding like a, a very, very good elk is uh, get that call cleaned up either. And there, there's typically two things that I find create that. Um, you know, people kind of have that, that lazy tongue. They're not using the back of their tongue to, you know, push up against that tape and seal it to the roof of your mouth. The second thing is more a function of the call tape and shape. Um, some people's mouths and everybody's mouth is slightly different. Um, one thing we've found with the amp frame is that for a lot of guys, um, the tape is actually a little bit too wide—not necessarily too deep from front edge of latex to back, but the actual, um, you know, I guess left to right or, or width is a little bit too wide. And what it's doing is, is when you go to try to create a seal. Um, there, it creates spots for air to get by. Um, so one thing we've been working with a lot of people, especially once I hear the videos, once we kind of confirm that they've got things sealed off, is don't hesitate to maybe trim the edges of the tape. Um, you know, Just a little bit goes a long way. Don't just start hacking into the you know middle of the tape and taking half the tape away. Just slowly start to work like the left and the right side. Like I say, I think you leave the depth of the call the same, but... Uh, with uh, okay. width-wise, we can start to, to shave that down a little bit and just to kind of get it off the side of your teeth, um, if that makes any sense.
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, and, and then... And, and that will... Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was going to say that. That kind
1: that seems to clean up probably 90% of, of the issues we've had, is that it, you listen to the file, um, narrow that up, and a lot of times it will
0: clean up okay and that's from you know a mechanic standpoint of of getting better sounds and what have you um what about from the audio files that you get and then you know at at all the shows probably people bringing their calls and blowing their calls and asking you know what do you think um and then as well as out in the woods some of the stuff you're hearing that the hunters are blowing and they actually are thinking that they're sounding good um from that standpoint, what do you think some of the mistakes that people make in actually, you know, in their elk calling, um, you know, whether it be situational or, or whatever they're doing to, to, to make those sounds, whether it be the sounds themselves or or the, the frequency or what have you, what are some mistakes that you see continually out there?
1: well that's tough. Um you know, I, I, it's not necessarily a mistake in the calling. It's more uh, a mistake, I think, in the mentality, especially for for new callers or guys that haven't had a lot of uh, success in calling, is they go in extremely timid, and and then you know they they go in timid. They're afraid to call, and then um, I think they lose a lot of opportunity. Where, yeah, uh, you know. You know if, if, those of us that know, or those of us that have been around elk enough, um, we all know that you know elk don't sound perfect all the time. You don't have to be the perfect sounding um, elk in order to you know call a bull. And and so I think people just need to be more confident and willing to call. First of all, and I, I know it's not necessarily what they sound like, um, but but don't be afraid to call. Um, you know, second, <laughs> I'm trying to think of of mistakes. Um, I don't get to to hunt. my hunting buddies and partners are all very very good at so I'm, I'm trying to think of things
0: that you know or, or hunts that I've watched um, you know it's how much of it do you think well, is like calling at the wrong time talk a little bit about the timing of your call and how important in your opinion not only sounding good but the timing of your call is super important yeah so
1: I there, there's a lot of there's a lot of um you know there's a lot of ways to do it and, and there's a lot of successful elk hunters that um, do it different ways I prescribe more to the temperament and the emotion uh, of that elk I'm trying to call in so my timing is uh, I try to get those things fired up and uh, and you know kind of see in red and we've talked about this we've I've always been curious if I could go down into that, that Arizona New Mexico and kind of duplicate and, and repeat some of the the stuff and the successes we've had up here, uh, you know, hunt up north, um, but, but my my prescriptive way of hunting is to get a bugle, and then we kind of, the timing is to walk right on top of them, don't let them get a chance to finish their bugle, um, you know, we get very, very close, uh, one thing I don't like to do is just sit back two or three hundred yards away and try to call that bull in, you um, know, just be, I want some intent on every single call I make, that call is meant to, you know, to get that bull to respond or to get that bull to come closer. I'm not just, I'm going to sit here because I hear an elk and, and hope that he he comes in. You know, I'm, I'm going to get the wind right. I'm going to try to get as close as possible um, to that elk and then deliberately make, um, you know, sounds that, that should pull him in. And so my typical um, strategy is to get in tight on that bull, um, make some cow calls to let him think that his cows are uh, needing attention, and then I usually bugle right after that. Um, and that's that's typically my my strategy. Um, you know, I don't know if that's the best strategy all the time, but it's the way I like to
0: hunt. So, in other words, you you you're not passive at all. You you hear an elk bugle, you you try and close the distance, get right in there, and 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 mix it up. Um, there's not many circumstances where you're gonna you know do a thirty minute calling session and then wait for an hour or anything like that. You're you're actively out there trying to pursue get an elk anther, whether it be a bull or a cow, and then and then move in from there trying to determine, you know, what you're dealing with and what have you. So you take a very active approach as opposed to a passive approach. Exactly. Yeah,
1: we're, um, you know, I don't know whether I don't have any patience or, or what the reason is, but
0: I love that excitement of, of you know, going after him. How much of that is driven with the fact that, you know, you like to mix it up? You are you like elk hunting because of elk calling. If, it, if elk never bugled, they might not even be on the top five of your list of hunts, right? I mean, you like elk hunting as, as well as I love elk hunting because of that same thing. You, you know, it's, it's an animal that you can interact with. Talk a little bit about that and your love for, you know, mixing it up with them.
1: It is, and, and uh, I'm gonna. I did a podcast yesterday at Ranella, and, and the situation came up, and I'll, I'll use this as an example. And I think it kind of tells the, the story exactly uh, where I'm at. So on one side of the ridge, there was a, a beautiful six-point bull that uh, was a for sure thing. Like if you were going to go after him, you had a 95 percent chance of killing him. And on the right side, you know, the other side of the ridge, you had seven bulls. You couldn't tell what they were, but they were all just going nuts down the timber, giggling their heads off ranella wanted to know which which side of the ridge i dropped off on um and, and then i think somewhere in there even said like you know the bulls on you you know none of the bulls on on the bugling side of the ridge are going to be bigger than the one on the left and you have a very good chance of killing them and, and my answer was i'm diving into the bugling bulls like that's there's a yeah i'm there <laughs> yeah. To, i'm there to fill the freezer i uh, don't get me wrong I, I love eating elk i love filling my freezer up but there's there's a whole other reason
0: why I'm out there, and, uh, you know, hunting bugling bulls is what it's all about. Yeah, for sure. It's awesome. It's something that if you're a listener out there and you haven't been on an elk hunt, and especially an elk hunt when they're bugling, um, I highly recommend, I'm sure Jason would, get out there, you know, hear your first elk bugle, get some elk calls, um, and, and, you know, dive in and just enjoy that because it's an unbelievable animal for sure um yep. jason i want to take a quick break here to hear from our sponsors and then i've got some listener questions that have come in uh, and we'll spend the last few minutes uh covering a few of these questions and then i'll let you get back to making some elk calls
2: guys i want to thank kuyu.com that's k-u-i-u.com for their sponsorship of this podcast and kuyu ultralight hunting makes the best ultralight hunting products on the market today. From items like the Peloton 240 full zip hoodie, the Chugach NX rain jacket, and the Super Down ultra jacket which will be going on my hunts to the Northwest Territories here soon. If you're talking about Kuyu pants, some of the pants that I like are the guide pant, that's for colder weather hunts like down in January on my deer hunts. You've got the Tiburon Pant for the warm season hunts. That's got the AirDock technology where it breathes really well. You've got the Attack Pant which is probably their number one selling pant. You've got their new Pro Pant which is their all-season all-terrain hunting pant with a new quiet ultra-suede foam line knee pad. It has four-way stretch. It only weighs 19.6 ounces. It's got the Torre DWR water repellency it's got the Torre make spec for odor control. Kuyu's rain gear is the best on the market in my opinion. I routinely wear the Chugach NX rain pant and rain jacket. Uh, I also have worn on some of the lower 48 hunts, the Ultra NX rain pant and jacket. Some of the other pieces you've got to check out or are the Peloton which is their synthetic version either the 130 zip off bottoms or the 200 zip-off bottoms. They also make them in a 145 merino wool or a 210 zip-off bottom merino wool. These are so convenient you can leave your boots on, you just drop your pants, unzip your long underwear and you're off and running again. Another amazing product are the Tiburon shorts. If you see any of the pictures of me in the summer on my Instagram account 99.9% of the summer I'm wearing Tiburon shorts on all my hiking all my fishing excursions it's got the air air dot technology uh, they breathe really well they're very well fitted and uh, you guys should check them out the tiburon short fantastic product from Kuyu ultralight hunting Kuyu has an amazing selection of products from jackets and vests pants and shorts shirts and tops footwear accessories lifestyle apparel They have a wide range of packs from the icon pro to the ultra the sleep system, the Kuyu sleeping bag I use on all my hunts. And then the, the tents, the Mountain Star two-person tent, the Storm Star tent, just phenomenal gear. Make sure to go to Kuyu, that's dot com, and check out all of the phenomenal gear that they provide. I want to thank theoutdoorsmans.com for their sponsorship of my podcast. I want to let you guys know they are the optics authority. and If you're looking for any binoculars, spotting scopes, rifle scopes, make sure to get a hold of the guys at the Outdoorsmans. If you use the J. Scott promo code, you get a 10% discount on all Outdoorsmans products. Go to outdoorsmans.com or you can call them at 1-800-291-8065.
0: Okay, Jason, we've got a few questions that have come in. Um, so we'll kind of – I'll just read the question, and then I'll let you answer. Maybe I'll i will give a, a, my two cents on it as well. Uh, we've got a question on Instagram, uh, Jason Partridge 91. He says, do you find mature bulls shadowing cow-calf groups early in September? Yes, and
1: it, it depends on the area and kind of the timing. Um where we're at, a lot of times when I'm out here at home, uh, the, the younger bulls will be, they'll already be in the herds maybe at the end of August, early September, and then somewhere between, and, and I'm just going to give approximate dates, it could definitely be outside this range, somewhere between like September 4th and September 8th around home, the bigger bulls you know, assume the position uh, of herd bull. You know, they'll kind of take the herd over from those smaller bulls that kind of um, grouped them up. Our spot in Idaho um, by the time we get there on uh, you know the 8th, the earliest we've hunted our Idaho spot and, and Montana spot has been the 6th. The big herd bulls were already all in the herd um, by then. I don't know if that is, I have to assume it probably, um, you know, the, the geographic location plays into that sometime and those bulls knowing uh, from year after year kind of when those cows are gonna come into cycle, um, when they need to be there, uh, but in my experience, Like, you know, early, early September maybe, but by the time, you know, the first five or six days of September rolls around, I expect those hurt bulls or those bigger hurt bulls to kind of be in the herd and and running running the show by that time.
0: Yeah, and I mean, I would agree with most of what you would say. I would say that, you know, when you get um, really, really big bulls, when we're talking like really mature and, you know, really big antlered bulls, Um, I've seen them down in Arizona where sometimes they're off completely off by themselves and from a timing standpoint Jason like you're talking you know 5th 6th of September down in Arizona that might be more you know 18th 19th 20th of September where you know lots of the smaller bulls have been bugling you know there's you know all the herd stuff going on Uh, you know smaller bulls you know chasing cows around what have you and it just seems like um, some of those big giant bulls and i'm talking about you know big bodied, big mature yeah, yeah. you know big, big rack bulls all of a sudden just come in you know and it seems like it's like that you know 17th 18th 19th 20th um any and sometimes even later and just come right into the herd and just take over start breeding cows um and so when when uh Jason's asking, or Partridge, Jason Partridge is asking this question, do, do you find mature bulls shadowing cow-calf groups in early September? My answer would be not really. I, I find the younger yeah. bulls definitely shadowing um, those cow-calf groups. And then once cows start coming into to estrus and cu- start coming into cycle, then boom, all of a sudden, and I'm sure it's like in your country up there, once that happens, all of a sudden the mature bulls, whether they're a big act bull. Or you know, just a big-bodied older bull. A lot of times, they just boom, they show up, and when you see that, um, you can pretty much bet that you know it's game on, and and um, you're going to have some fun. Wouldn't you agree, Jason? Yeah, yeah.
1: And, and going back to an example, you you kind of you know added some clarifications of the really really big bulls. Um, we had a, a Washington bull here that we hunted in 2013, and we'd seen him two or three times. But we would see him for the first 10 minutes at daylight, he would leave the herd of cows and go sneak through a little pass. He'd completely break off from them like he'd come check them at night. And and he did that all the way until he slipped up like on September 15th. He had no interest in being with that herd of cows. Yet, except for at night to check on them, and he was slipping back into his you know his, his hidey hole. Um, so I guess, yeah, when you get into the really, really mature bulls, I think they've just got that, that extra sense to, to stay away until it's go time. Yeah, for sure.
0: Um, I've got a question here from Jacob Bell, and he says, uh, what elevation do you find most of your elk best habitat at? Um, Jason, I'll let you, I'll let you answer that.
1: So that one, there's, there's not going to be a straight answer, because if you had to ask me that, and I had to walk out my front door, I'm sitting at 300 foot elevation here, you know, so, so there's elk anywhere from, from 300 to, to 2,000, I think that, that question is very, very tough to answer until I figure out where, you know, the spots we hunt in Colorado, where we get out of the truck at nine thousand feet. Um, you know, the spots we hunt in Idaho, we get out at five thousand. So it's just, it really depends on the area you're hunting. I don't know, I don't know exactly how, but, you know, uh, how to answer that question. I guess.
0: Yeah, I, mean, any- I, I would, I would agree. Without the context of what state and where you're at, I mean. In Arizona, you could be anywhere from 5,000 feet to, you know, 9,000 feet, but I would say in Arizona, you've got a lot of that habitat around that six, 7,000 feet, you know, you've got your ponderosa pine, you've got your pinyon juniper, um, and then you take the total contrast to that up there in, in Phelps' country, you know, you've got, you know, I'm sure thick timber and what have you, but, yep. you know, you may only be at 2,500 feet in elevation, so it's it's completely yeah. different if you're talking Colorado you know you're you're in those zones of you know six thousand feet where you've got a lot of oak brush um, you know say from fifty five up to sixty five maybe even up to seven and then you start getting into um, you know your your um, aspens and what have you when you get in the eight nine ten thousand foot range and then of course you know in in Colorado you've got you know you're above eleven thousand feet and there's not a tree up there you're above tree lines so i I think it it totally depends on what state you're hunting even even within states wouldn't you agree jason like um some states have a vast you know variety of terrain and elevation where you know you could have some of the best stuff in montana's out in the flat or you know way high so i mean it it is a little bit hard um i i would say you know definitely in those states where you've got aspen thickets, you know, that's usually very good elk habitat. Um, You know, in some of your lower terrain where you've got, you know, the oak brush, that's phenomenal habitat. Elk uh, generally like being in that oak brush. Um, You know, I, I would say even more than habitat is look for good habitat, but, you know, look for areas where you can get away from people and elk have a great sense of trying, you know, and, and, seems like i find them in places where you know there's not tons of people so i yep. think i would look at some of those areas where um you know they're not hugely trafficked areas and and typically you'll find more elk you know then you have the exact opposite of that sometimes in arizona where you know i've got unit nine we've got roads everywhere and you know ponder it's pretty much all ponderosa pines and and pinyon juniper and there's kind of elk all over but in general across the west it seems like um you know those areas where you can get back where you know the interaction with people and and disturbance of people isn't as bad seems like that's where you find those pockets of elk
1: yeah yeah i, yeah, I would say it's more of a and that's the same in the years we had. it's not necessarily an elevation thing um there are a couple spots you know they want to be above tree line or or in spots, but, yeah, it's, it's more of a, a pressure thing, or year after year, the elk know they're safe in here, so they go there to rut, and that, that seems to be a better indicator than sometimes elevation.
0: Yeah, and um, Jason, I'm curious um, your thoughts on, you know, when you're picking terrain to hunt, um, you know, so if you if you could just, you know, say, this is what I want to hunt, and, you know, it was a perfect world where you could say, I'm going to hunt them in this type of, of, of terrain, is there a certain type of terrain that, you know, with all other factors, let's say you had a million-acre private ranch or something, and you could just say, I wish it was all this, you know, what is there a certain habitat, like, do you like tight, dense stuff? Do you like, you know, intermixed? Do you like wide open? What do you like to hunt elk Elkin? I like intermixed
1: um, timber and, and parks or, you know, clear cuts or, or meadows, whatever you want to call it. And, and the that way I got enough enough vegetation, uh, enough terrain breaks kind of to, to keep me hidden when I do need to move closer, but then I've got the open and, and clean enough to, to shoot and not be tangled up in brush the whole time. So that's you know, if I could pick the, the perfect time it'd be kind of that mixed mixed timber,
0: mixed dark timber, uh, you know, mixed meadows. Um, I, you know and then I'm sure that yeah. I'm sure there's times up there in the brush when you're fighting it in some of your country there that you're just like, geez, just get me to some more open country. I mean, I'm sure yeah. you have those thoughts from time it, to time.
1: It, yeah, it it is a jungle here, and and I've had some buddies, you know, let's go out of state. Let's go to, like, northern Idaho or let's go to northwest Montana. I'm like, absolutely not. Like, I'm not leaving home. I'm not leaving the jungle here to go to jungle somewhere else. Like, I want to go to somewhere that's wide open and not a piece of brush.
0: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, Uh, I've got another question here from uh, Outfitter underscore advisors on Instagram. It says, uh, what do you guys do if the bulls are not vocalizing? So I'm going to go ahead and assume that he's talking about, you know, kind of the rut time, September, um, you know, either a quiet stretch or if the bulls are just just not bugling. Jason, what do you do at that point?
1: Um, so when I get there, I, the first thing I like to do, if it's a new area or if it's an area I've been to, if it's an area I've been to, I'm going to go hit all the known, you know, kind of the hot spots. Like they're, they typically like to feed out in this meadow or they'll go through this pass on the ridgeline. I'm going to go check those, you know, three, four, five, ten, ten key spots that I know should give me a good idea what's going on in this area. Um, and just look for sign, look for tracks, look for rubs, um, really quick, uh, and because I'm, I'm not willing to sit and dedicate a lot of time to a spot that the elk may not be there. And we've noticed that um, in, in some of our spots out of state, whether it's Montana, um, Idaho. If, if wolves have moved in there, they can change the dynamics of our spot, no matter how good it's been the last five years in a row. Um, something could change in there, and the elk may not be there at that time. So first thing we'll do is go look at the spots and, and be willing to, to move or go locate them somewhere else. Um, rule, rule number two is: I always like to give a spot um, the chance. I'll go out at night and locate. Um, you know, after it gets dark, eat my dinner, let it get, let the sun go down, let it get really dark, and then I'll go out and you know locate Google in the areas where I think should be the best. And I should get a response now that it's dark. Um, if that doesn't give me anything, typically I'm definitely you know I'm I'm. I'm almost always going to move spots unless there's something, you know, whether it was scouting or a giant bull that I see in this area that I know should still be around. I, I'm going to go find some elk in the unit that are ready to
0: play. So, I mean, you're taking the approach that you're there to call elk, you're there to interact with elk. If they're not going to play, you're going to go, you're going to pick up shop and go find. After you've checked yeah, a few of those spots, you're going to pick up shop and just go find uh, a different part of the unit where you can where you can go interact with them. Yep, yeah. yeah. I, I at least want to give them a day, especially if it's a spot I've been to and I know it's typically been
1: good um, or should be good. I, I will. I'll run the ridge. I'll, I'll maybe run the creek. Maybe run through some fringes, you know, the meadows, just the edges of them to see you know, when when we're all cure-loss. Are they still here? Can I just not find them? Um, at least give it some time before I pull the plug. But um, I, some of the mistakes we made really early on when we started doing this is we would just dedicate waiting. Way too much time to spot to look good, but it was from our you know our computer desk from home, and didn't necessarily mean that they were going to be out there, and so we we wasted days or wasted time um, getting on. L you know, just trying to trying to hold with plan A versus B, C or D could have been a
0: lot better. I I hear what you're saying. I do have a question from a you know bulls not vocalizing too much, pretty quiet out there. Does that? do you well do you continue to um, you know try and bugle make sounds or do you clam up as well I I've, I've, I've seen guys go either way where they just you know they just hammer the bugle over and over and over and nothing's happening and then I've seen guys go well it's quiet I'm not gonna make a sound where do you fall in your strategy when you are trying to eliminate you know you know, it, you know, have m- wolves moved in? What's you know, maybe a bunch of people have been hunting in here. Do you, do you get more quiet or do you get more vocal when the bulls are are quiet themselves? So I I kind of just run prescriptive. I'm pretty pretty loud. I'm I bugle a lot regardless. Of, you
1: know, if it is good, then I'll keep bugling a lot, trying to get something. And if they're not bugling, I kind of prescribe to well. They just need to hear more bugle so they can answer me. Um, so I, I typically just keep, keep hammering the bugle, um, it's just, I don't necessarily do big challenge bugles, I'm just walking the ridge, um, you know, maybe bugling every two to three hundred yards, just a, a quick locator off one side, locator off the other, and continue down, I'm, I'm looking for that elk that's, that's kind of ready at that time, um, you know, there are times where you might get a faint response and you've got to kind of turn that bull, you know, bull up, but, um that that's typically you know i'm just going to be a little lot regardless if they're quiet and then if not all go go find a new spot but um, yeah we don't we don't ever try to if that's tough because you don't know if they're just not answering or they're not out there um so you you know maybe maybe some of the signs you've seen would let you know that that they're out there they're just not answering then that might be a little bit different you might have to go to still hunt mode or you know if you can figure out where the heck they're at by glassing them or something you can you know use some different strategies but uh I'm there to try to call bulls. And now, you know, I'm not saying if if your if your goal is just to kill an elk, that it might not make sense to, to spot them with the binoculars and then go in and make a move on them. But uh, I wanna I wanna try to call one of these things in. So I'm looking for that bull that wants to respond.
0: Yeah, and I I, I totally hear what you're saying. Um, I might give the advice that if if someone is listening and they have the same question, you know, the bulls are quiet. If you're the type that you know you want to mix it up, you're there to, to call an elk in, you know that's bugling or that's coming to the call. Then I, I think you have got to totally run and gun and you've got to move. You got to try a different yeah. spot and maybe come back in a few days or a week and you know see if that spot's back on again. Um, I would tell you that if the bulls are quiet and let's say you drew drawn in a, a premium unit and you know at this point you're you're not just trying to have interactions. You're maybe trying to kill a better bull than what you've already killed or. You know, you've got certain trophy expectations. I mean, you—I think you have the nail on the head. I think you got to maybe do a little more glassing if, if the country will allow, get up high, and sometimes they just go through those lulls where it's just they're 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 right there, but they're just not real active. Maybe they've been pressured. Maybe you just need to give them a break. Um, so yep. sometimes just getting up high, glassing, just kind of listening, looking around. And, you know, certainly if there's a specific bull that you want to kill and you know he's in the area and it's just gotten quiet, give him a day or two. You know, if, if you're yeah. focused in on one or two bulls and you know that they're right there still in that area, the last thing you want to do is go, you know, just blowing them out. So maybe I would be yeah. a little more passive in that situation and just try and, you know, give them a day or two and, and see if they change their, you know, their behavior and um then you can get after them. So that that's all good stuff. I've got a question in yeah, here. Oh, go ahead. Whoops. I was going to say I talked to a good buddy yesterday about uh, honey elk in the
1: burn, which is something I've never really done and and that's kind of ties into your you know give it a couple more days is you know they can visually see these elk every day and and they will not go after them until like a cow comes in in the you know in the heat or whatever that day or in the estrus because um the, the herd's just dead. You've got so many eyes looking at you. But that day where he comes in, um, it changes everything. And so, like, you know, and he's like, "We'll beagle at him. We'll do nothing. They, they have zero response. But then that day happens, and he's a 100 times by himself, but yet they've been there the entire time. They just have the fortune of being able to see him because they're in a burn, um, which gives you some idea, you know, alludes to where well, they might be there, but they're just not answering because, you know, nothing's going on.
0: Yeah, for sure. Okay, a question here. It says bugle or cow call. I don't know if that means if you had to choose one or the other, but maybe let's play that scenario. If if I if I told you you could go out in for the season, you could only take one or the other. What call are you taking?
1: (laughs) I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna go with a bugle. Like I said, there's there's some other reasons why I hunt during September. Um, if I just wanted to go, even if I wanted to go kill an elk, I don't know which I'd pick there, but just because of the way I hunt and what I'm out there after, I would pick the bugle. Um, I think I'd okay. still be and, pretty dang effective with the way I hunt and, and still be, um,
0: yeah. It, and, and to take that a step further, you're going to choose the bugle. Exactly what tube and exactly what call, what's your go-to, what is your go-to bugle call? and your tube?
1: Um, I'll, I'll grab, so we've got the new unrivaled, which is our little guy, and then we have the, I, if I have to pick one, not knowing exactly what country I'm going to, I'm probably going to grab the big one just so I can have a little more volume, uh, a little bit better projection, and then I'm going to grab um, probably my personal felt signature, a uh, diaphragm. Now, if I had to just choose one beagle, I would probably, I'll, I'll take a challenge beagle with me because I can locate what that. Good enough, and then once it, my strategy requires me to get in close and, and challenge that bull, um, so I'm going to take my pink Phelps signature amp frame and a challenge bugle, and that's what I'm going to I'm going to go to go elk with that.
0: Okay. Uh, question here: What is your best call for beginners? And again, obviously we've got cow calls and, and bugle calls, but you also your mouth calls. You like to make them where they work for everything, but if if you had a beginner, what do you which one of your calls do you usually start them out with? And so I've got a, an answer now. I know there's there's the one
1: there. So I would say pick one or the other. I like to start people with two calls, especially if they're a beginner. And you know I don't want to sound like a used car salesman or you know buy one of everything. But there's a specific reason why I want you to, There's a specific reason why I want a new caller to get two calls. As you mentioned you like your cow calls really loose where. So if a new color grabs a, a gray amp diaphragm and they realize that their culling style, they're never going to be good with, with heavy latex, they might have missed the boat completely, whereas if they've got a black or an orange, which has a light loose latex, um, they may have been a, you know, a, a good color right out of the gate. And so I always recommend getting a black amp and a gray amp um, diaphragm. And what that does, that kind of puts us at the, at the third point um, within our line, you know, one more to the higher pitched, easier to use calls, and then one more towards the deeper, a little bit heavier latex calls, and then we'll kind of ask the question, which one worked better for you, uh, you know, what did you like about that one, did they both work for you, and then I can get better guidance um, as they pick out their next call or go to put an additional order
0: in. Good stuff. Uh question here, what are your elk plans this fall? So
1: right off the bat, we're going to do Land of the Free 2.0 with the Born and Raised Outdoors guys. Uh, we're going to go to Colorado. Uh, myself, Dirk Durham, uh, my hunting buddy Nick Schmidt, and Steve Howard from Born and Raised. Us four will have elk tags, and I think the entire Born and Raised crew is going. Cody and Trent for sure, and coming and, down to
0: my my neck of the woods. Yeah, yeah, we're
1: heading back to to Colorado. My first that'll be my first time archery elk hunting. Uh, Colorado, so that'll be that'll be awesome. fun. And then from there, we will all load up and head back to Idaho. Well, as of right now, it's Idaho. We haven't bought tags yet, but we're kind of kind of watching the fires and seeing what's going on. Um, we'll head back to Idaho, and then I'll hunt um, there with a couple buddies um, until the end of September. So pretty much on those two hunts, I'll burn up most of September for me. Good
0: stuff. And Good then stuff. How long will we'll, uh, you plan on staying in Colorado? um with the born and raised i mean is it going to be like a week or two weeks or what's your thoughts i think i think it's planned right now for like a 10-day hunt for with the with all of us so i think you know like the first to the 11th somewhere in there there's going to be some shenanigans going on then won't there oh, it's going to be a
1: blast <laughs> and it, it's kind of uh, you know five years ago i was all about trying to kill bulls and now i, I look forward to this hunt specifically because it's just going to be a whole lot of fun a whole lot of great guys in camp but i think uh are still going to be in trouble.
0: <laughs> That's good. Um, and then you're going to finish up uh, there in your home state? Yep, and then we'll uh, we'll muzzleloader hunt. I don't
1: actually have a tag because Washington makes you pick east or west. And I've got enough points now. I've been trying to draw some premium tags on the east side of the state. Uh, but we'll get home early October, and uh, a couple of my hunting buddies have uh, muzzleloader tags here uh, early October. So we'll, I'll go out and, and call for them and film for them. Awesome!
0: Yeah. Awesome. Uh, another question yep. here. Tell us, tell us about your latest fitness uh, kick uh, at as of late. Uh, what what created that? How's your progress, and what are your goals? Oh boy! Um, so got done with
1: as you mentioned earlier. We saw you in Salt Lake City. I got home from that that last trip that was the end of our sportsman show tour and i got on the scale and i'm like whoa that's that's not good uh, that's a lot of winter your, eye,
0: your eyes and popped out and you're like what happened yeah like that that snuck <laughs> up on me
1: or maybe it didn't i just wasn't paying attention and uh like, well we got to do something about this so that you know i, I want to be back in the good shape and there's uh you yeah, know there's no denying when i'm in better shape like you look back was the, uh, the best shape i was ever in was 2012 and that was by far my best L cut and see. Like you can say it's a coincidence or not, or there's no correlation. But I'm like, I want to get back in shape. And so then my next, uh, you know, I spent a couple of weeks trying to figure out: Do I want to just eat, you know, the the salads and you know, high protein, and and do that route? And then this whole keto thing um, kick. Uh, I'd been reading about it, hearing about it, and so I decided to just try it. Um, and, and so it's a pretty high fat. Diet, um, moderate protein, and then very low carbs. And so I did that um, from the 1st of March until now, and I've, I've lost about 60, 62 pounds, I think, is where I'm at wow. right now. Good um, for you. I feel really good, have a, have a ton of energy, and uh, get around better in the, the hills and mountains than I have in, in a long time. So, uh,
0: feeling really good from that side um, going into this year. A couple specific questions to follow up on that. Um, Can you talk about from day to day actually what you eat? Like, you know, start me out, wake up, you know, take me through a full day of typically exactly what you're eating. Okay, so I only eat twice
1: a day. Uh, I intermittent fast for like 19 hours a day, and then I eat like in a five-hour window, or I try to eat in a five-hour window. So my my two meals were coming at like 11 a.m. and 4 p.m., And uh, so, like a a typical lunch uh, at 11 a.m., I would have a whole avocado, um, like two chicken thighs, um, maybe a handful of pecans, and that might be it for that day. Or I might have some other, you know, uh, 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 elk steak or two, something to add a little bit more protein into that. And then for dinner, uh, I might come home and cook like a ribeye steak, and that would be it. maybe maybe some broccoli, maybe some Brussels sprouts, some some sort of a vegetable with some some high fiber, and that that's pretty much what I would eat for the day. And uh, with the high fat, the nice thing is is I could make it from four o'clock and, and never really feel hungry again. Um, so it, it kind of it kind of plays with my head a little bit, you know. Back normal eating says, "Oh, you could eat chicken breast and take the skin off." Now I'm like, oh, "I should eat chicken thighs and legs and keep all the skin on." I, you know, it kind of it was kind of a reverse to what you've been taught your whole life, but uh, there was no denying that the weight came off fast, and it continued to come off until I think I kind of settled into a, a spot here where you know it's kind of where my body wants to be now.
0: Do you think that that diet, or should I ask, um, moving forward, are you just going to continue to eat like that, or can you? Can you add some other things in that will not put the weight on, um, you know, where, where it could be a little bit more, not balanced, but, you know, it's like, it. I'm sure you, you with your eating with your family and stuff, you're kind of in a weird routine. Moving forward, yeah. now that you've lost 62 pounds, are there things that you can do to add in or timing, or are you still going to continue with that twice a day uh, meal habit? I think I'm gonna continue. I just I feel so much better. Like joint joint pain, like joint health feels better than
1: it ever has. Mental anxiety, like I wake up and feel like I'm on point all the time. So I'm going to do it as long as possible. I may uh, modify it a little bit, add a little bit more protein back in. Uh, but I think the the carbs, me and carbs just don't get along. Um, you know, it, outside of vegetables and stuff. Um, so I'm gonna to try to eat like this as as long as possible. Uh, we'll see how long I can maintain. Um, you know, hunting-wise, it, it was actually the best I've ever felt in the woods when I was on keto. I got to go on a spring bear hunt this year with my buddy, and uh, my legs have never been stronger. I've never had more energy, you know, from for a full day, and so I'm very excited. From from that side uh, of continuing this, this journey in the hunting season, the one downside is trying to pack your dang food. Um, for, you know, it's easy to grab a granola bar. It's tough to pack an avocado type of food in, you know, so there's going to be, like, coconut oil and stuff i've got to try to figure out how to to eat and stuff but
0: um yeah my legs felt really really good on it at the same time jason were you doing a lot of um training and working out or was it really this weight loss was really strictly due to diet i was i think
1: the way uh, the the working out definitely helped um i'm pretty convinced though that, that the weight loss so I, I started the diet before I started the gym by about three weeks, and I'd already lost probably 12 pounds before I ever stepped in the gym. So I'm I'm pretty sure the weight loss would have come regardless. Not there's no denying that working out definitely, you know, probably jump started that or turbocharged it uh, a little bit. Um, but yeah, the, the diet itself. Just the more I the more I read about it, the more I learned. But I kind of became a nerd about it. Um, you know, I think it's just. For certain body
0: types, for certain metabolisms, is just you know it's, it's the answer. Awesome, man, that's awesome. Well, yeah, um, I know your I know your time's valuable. Um, I'll let you go. Before you do go, couple things I want to um, I want you to tell the listeners where they can uh, find out more about you, where they can follow you, where they can buy out calls and all your different um, game calls. Uh, and then if there's any new stuff out there or anything that you want people to know about or remind people about, um, do so, and then I'll let you go.
1: Okay. Yeah, no, we're on we're on, media on Instagram and Facebook mainly, uh, at Phelps Game Calls on Instagram, uh, Phelps Game Calls on Facebook. Uh, I'm on Facebook personally, too. You can always send me a message there. Uh, our website is www.phelpsgamecalls.com, uh, and really the only thing new we've got outside of the Signature Series diaphragm that we released back in February is that new, unrivaled Beagle tube, which uh, is a short is about 17 inches long, uh, weighs about four and a half ounces, is all compared to the Unleashed tube, which is 24 inches long and 15 and a half ounces. So it, it's drastically um, smaller and more packable than that big one, but doesn't give up a whole lot. Um, so that's, that's really all we've got for
0: new products um, as of right now. Awesome, man. Well, I uh, look forward to following your progress on Instagram. I appreciate you spending some time here with us and um, uh, get that bloody nose fixed up and uh, <laughs> uh, ha- have a great elk season and uh, just uh, enjoy it. I know you will. And uh, I always appreciate talking to you here on the podcast. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for having me, Jane. Good luck this year with all your hunts. All right, buddy. Take care. God bless.